Hello, listeners. Uh, welcome to Why Did You Read That? This first, like, maybe three or four minutes is going to be a little different. Here's what happened. Megan and I met to record. Um, I brought a bad micro SD card, and uh, it basically messed up the recording. So it's unlistenable. Um, it's no good. Fortunately, it was only about the first 10 minutes or so of the show that got uh, ruined. So what I'm going to do is summarize it for you very quickly. Um, if this is your first time listening to this show, understand there's a, a lot more charm when Megan is here with me. And I'm not just doing this myself to kind of quickly get you up to speed. So, you know, skip ahead a few minutes if this is not to your taste. If this is something you do want to hear, though, um, I'll get everyone caught up. You'll also want to hear this part because uh, we both described the four books we brought. So why did you read that? Here's how it works. Megan and I, um, both librarians who now have, you know, different library jobs, are uh, we come together once a month-ish, sort of, and we each bring four books. I bring four books, and then Megan tells me which two she wants to hear about in depth. She brings four books. I tell her which of her four I want to hear, which two of her four I want to hear about in depth. And uh, we kind of each take turns, talk about the books we brought, and then uh, we'll also briefly summarize the uh, ones we didn't talk about at the end, which sometimes gets a little longer and sometimes a little shorter. Um, so we get right into it. Uh, there is usually a joke at the beginning as well, which is, this is the big tragedy of losing this for me personally. Um, understand, as difficult as this may be for you, for me, it is a tragedy because I correctly guessed the punchline of the joke. This is one of my greatest moments ever, ever to happen. And unfortunately, it was not recorded. So I'm not going to share the joke because that's kind of Megan's thing and I don't want to step on her toes. So here are the four books I brought. One is The Mad World of William M. Gaines by Frank Jacobs. Um, that's a book about uh, Mad Magazine publisher and also EC Comics publisher and, you know, which things like Tales from the Crypt. Uh, William Gaines, who was kind of an eccentric. Uh, we had Stay Out of the Basement by R.L. Stein, also known as Goosebumps Number 2. Uh, there's a book called Delicious in Dungeon by Ryoko Kui, which is, uh, there's a animated series on Netflix based on it right now. It's kind of Dungeons and Dragons crossed with a cooking show. And then we've got Greener Pastures by Chuck Palahniuk, which was a novel that he serialized through a uh, newsletter. Megan chose to hear about The Mad World of William Gaines by Frank Jacobs. Um, just to sort of briefly describe that again, basically we have a, a, what I would call a rogue publisher working in the 50s and 60s especially. Um, and he was a very odd, eccentric sort of person. You know, he made a lot of lists, and he had lists of his lists, and his lists were things like, what are the things I'm most concerned about? And, uh, you know, what do I need to get done in the next three months, and then the next six months, and then the next whatever? And he kind of obsessively would come into work one day, have his list for that day, and then if it was getting towards the end of the day and there were things he couldn't cross off his list. It was maddening to him to use the uh, term that describes the magazine. Um, he was also a big figure in the sort of 
1950s comic book whole thing, which if you don't know much about it, comic books came under big fire for basically presenting things that were not appropriate for children at that time. So there are a lot of echoes to our current era. Um, but it's a very fun book. I would describe it as kind of like, uh, it's almost like watching Mad Men, but instead of like everybody drinking too much and harassing women in the workplace and stuff, they're doing more harmless pranks and uh, just seems like a more jovial environment. I'll give you one example. There's a guy who worked at Mad Magazine who every year would keep a list of all the people who kind of annoyed him or, um, to his perception, wronged him in some way throughout the year, and he would invite them all to a big party. And then basically it was a party made up of people that he found super annoying and that most other people found super annoying. And so he would invite them all to this party and he would, you know, host the party. He would purposely get a tuxedo that was two sizes too big. So he looked terrible and he would have snacks with like finger sandwiches that had, you know, like uh, ham and cigarette ashes in it or peanut butter and pencil shavings and stuff like that. And he had wine, which was a uh, grape soda that he had opened up the week before so that it was totally flat and tasted terrible. And then everyone would come to this party and he would just pretend like, you know, he was really trying to throw a genuine extravagant sort of party. He also hired a very intimidating young man to be the bathroom attendant. Um, and he was basically, his directions were like, stand over here, look really scary. And ideally no one will use the bathroom because they'll be too afraid, which totally worked. So basic, and you know, he would introduce these annoying people to each other. So somebody who was like, for example, uh, an annoying person in the publishing world, he would introduce to a guy who was quote unquote big in newspapers who was like the guy who worked at a newspaper stand who had also annoyed this guy earlier in the year. Um, and so he did this year after year until the the budget, you know, and this is a, a party of hundreds of people. And once the budget crested $100, so he was spending, you know, more than 50 cents a person for this party. He was like, forget it, not doing that. That's ridiculous. <laughs> So, you know, a lot of a lot of there are a lot of little anecdotes like that in this book. And I, I it made it very fun. And it was kind of a glimpse into a uh, an odd office culture from that time. But that's not, um, you know, malevolent odd. It's just strange people, but they all kind of found each other and work together. And it seems kind of beautiful. So then Megan described her four books briefly. We had On the Edge by Alona Andrews. Alona Andrews is back on Megan's reading list. Um, this is the first book in a series that Megan hadn't read yet, but her Alona Andrews options are getting smaller and smaller. She reads more and more. And it's a little bit about this uh, magical world that exists parallel to our world. And there's also a space in between called The Edge. There's episode 13 by Craig DeLuey. It's kind of a... Uh, found footage horror novel. It's about a TV show that does paranormal investigations, and the book is made up of transcripts and emails, and the team on the show is investigating a mansion where in the past people were doing, you know, some of that uh, 
psychedelic experimentation and stuff like that. And uh, they're sent there to kind of see if there's any proof of the paranormal. And of course, things go horribly wrong because that's what always happens. Um, there's Under Her Eye, uh, which is a poetry anthology. Uh, won the Stoker Award for Poetry, and it's a collection of domestic horror by women, domestic horror poetry by women, uh, and it is meant to raise money for violence against women worldwide. And the last one was Hooky by Miriam. Okay, sorry, this is uh, maybe French. Miriam Bonasartre Tour. Uh, and there's, it's about a world where there are witches and there are normal people. And there are these two young witches who are going to like witch school and miss the bus and basically find a different mentor to help them. And, you know, then it gets into a bigger plot about prophecies and into the world and all that. I picked Alona Andrews to hear about first. Um, and so Megan described just the very beginning of her description and then. She described the beginning of her description. You must be so happy that this part is almost over, because this part is almost over. Um, she described sort of the beginning of uh, what she wanted to say, and then we can cut back into the audio that actually worked. Uh, so here we go. Basically, um, On the Edge follows a lot of uh, standard Alona Andrews story elements. There's the world we live in, which is called The Broken. Um, that's the you and I world. And the broken does not have magic. And then there's the weird, which is the other parallel world, which does have magic. And then there's the edge, which is the space sort of in between. It's sort of the magic demilitarized zone. And it has some magic. Some people can cross between from the weird to the broken. Um, but non-magic people like you and me can't really go from the broken to the weird. It doesn't really work that way. Um, it's possible to cross over, but it's like for most people, it's very painful and you might die and, you know, other things like that. So people who can cross over are very rare. And um, our hero is a woman who can cross back and forth. And so uh, people who can do that will smuggle items back and forth. So they'll take magical elements to the broken and they can bring things like peanut butter and comic books to the weird. Sort of like, you know, if you live outside the United States, you might be like, can you bring me a bunch of Cap'n Crunch or something? Um, the book's featured character is this woman who lives in the edge and can travel back and forth, which is, uh, you know, easily, relatively. And that's very rare. So there is an element, a group of people who are trying to capture her um, to make her a uh, baby making machine. So she can make more people who can travel between the worlds. And uh, that brings us to right where we left off here. So I'm going to turn it back over to us, I guess. <laughs> and thank you for being patient. I am so sorry. This probably won't happen again. It certainly didn't happen intentionally. And, you know, I've taken steps to fix it next time. Um, so enjoy the rest of the episode way more than you enjoyed this part. So should I just say what happened? Yeah, or? I think okay. so. Okay, so basically we were in the middle of talking about the book. We ran out of space on this micro SD card because it was more micro <laughs> than we, we knew. And so we had to switch to a new card. Yeah. And so Megan was talking about the crossing over. Right. And the making, they wanted to get her to have babies. Yeah, basically to 
get her magic power in their bloodline. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then I think we also probably were missing because I asked if someone is in the broken. Mm-hmm. There's no magic in the broken. That is my understanding, yes. Okay. See, now because it's not recorded when I asked it, I can just say it and sound super smart. <laughs> like, yes. I totally get it and understand everything. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So the story is basically you have Rose who lives in the edge. and She's taking care of her two younger brothers, one of whom is a necromancer. And he has a lot of – he has like a very soft heart. So he sees like little dead bunnies and things and brings them back to life. Oh, okay. But basically every time he does that, he uses his own life force to keep them going. And so he's not growing and like he's getting – he's very fragile and frail because they can't convince him that things are supposed to die. Um, And then she has another brother who is a shape changer and he turns into basically um, like a lynx, like a cat. Okay. And um, so she's kind of protecting them and then you get this – guy who comes in from the weird who's hunting uh, a renegade who stole this magical artifact that basically creates these terrible magical creatures that eat magic and like kill everybody. Okay. So, um, yeah, it's about them trying to defeat him basically with a, a romantic side plot. Now this is part one of a series? Yes. Is this a new series? No. Okay. And then how many parts are there? Uh, I'm not sure. Okay. I just kind of read one and then get the next one, and when it ends, it ends. And don't spoil it for yourself right. by knowing right. that it's coming to a conclusion. Well, each book is about, like, a different set of characters oh, in the world. I so I, you know. So you could kind of, uh, I okay, could, yeah. I gotcha. Um, so I have so many questions about, the like, how magic works. Yeah. Megan, explain to me magic. <laughs> I cannot. So if you're in the weird, can you go to the edge? Yes. And that that works, but yes. you can't go from the broken to the edge. Um, if you if you're not a magical no person. Um, people who don't have any magic and live in the broken, um, they don't even realize like they that couldn't. It yeah, they couldn't cross over. They wouldn't know it was there. Mm. They would just like automatically find themselves headed in another direction and like. It, like, as far as they're concerned, it doesn't even exist. They're, it's impossible for them to get there. Gotcha. Gotcha. I was a little insulted that our, our world is called The Broken because I was like, eh, that's not great. But then when the other one's called The Weird, I was like, eh, I guess they're none of the names are, yeah. like, nice. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's something. Well, and The Weird is, like, uh, um, it's... It's more historical. They still have, like, dukes and castles and, like, realms and stuff. So um, all of the technology of the broken is, like, fascinating to the weird. And then they have, like, magical artifacts that they bring in or, like, gold and things from the weird and they trade them in the the broken. So if I bring, like, an iPod to the weird, does it still work? Not sure. Okay. I'm pretty sure this was written pre I don't know if it was written pre-iPod. I'm not sure when it was written, so I'm not. I don't want to say that. But much. like electronics would work, or no? I don't, as far do they as have I know electricity they there? No, I don't think oh, so. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. So whether it would work, I'm not sure, but it wouldn't continue to work. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. I guess the good news is you could bring like an iPod, and if it did work, they wouldn't like they could accuse you of sorcery, but it doesn't really mean anything, right? <laughs> it's like, well, it's all sorcery over here. I don't True. know. Yeah. 
So mm. what do you think of it so far? I mean, I've read the first book. In your and, Ilona yeah. Andrews power ranking. I mean, it's it's not as good as the Kate Daniels series, mm-hmm. um, which is like my favorite. Is and that it's not universally as good. kind of the most beloved? The Kate Daniels and the, um, what is the name of the other series? The one that has like um, Burn For Me and on that whole series. Those two are my favorite. Probably Burn For Me is my favorite, followed by Kate Daniels. Okay. Those are, I think, are, are considered to be their best. Um, and then I like the Sweep series and then probably this one after. Is Alona Andrews at all like, you know, if you like certain bands, it's like, well, which album do you like? And that kind of tells big fans of those bands, like, are you like a poser? Is there an Alona Andrews poser? Is that a thing? I don't think so. <laughs> I think Romance Land has, has done a lot of work to avoid gatekeeping stuff. Yeah. So I think that if you if you love a book, you love a book, and we're happy for that. I mean, that's how I feel, yeah. you know, about bands and stuff. I'm not like, oh, you like that? That's the, you know... They're popular album, so right. clearly it's terrible, <laughs> you know, but whatever. Yeah. It makes sense, though. Not so much a thing in romance. You're already in a little bit of a niche. Yeah. So I guess once you're in a niche of a niche by following a specific author, it's a little, uh, how, what are you doing? Like, I'm going to put this other person down so I'm above them. And it's like, well, I mean, you're above one person inside this very small I mean, niche. Everybody talks you know, throws shade and romance. So, like, yeah, why we're not going to do it at each other. It's true. Yeah. There's already enough. That's true. From coming from outside that yeah. community, why do it inside as yeah, well? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the zombies are all outside. We're going to just all eat each other in this room. <laughs> right. Doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. We try to avoid it. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. So yeah, that's on the edge. Um, beginning of oh, the series. Oh, now I get the title. On the edge. Yeah, yeah. now I get it. <laughs> it's, it basically gives them an opportunity to write in a lot of sword fighting and stuff, which it seems to be like something they love: sword fighting, huh. swords, and sword fighting. Interesting. Yeah. Wonder if that's something they do like. Well, I know that the they're a husband and wife team. I know that the husband came from some sort of military background, so my guess is that he probably has used like bladed weapons and has a has a, a passion for it. That's also a very specific kind of nerd. Yeah. I knew a guy who would, like, go to the Ren Fest and, like, buy swords ah. and then, like, put them above the fireplace. He was not, like, a stabby guy. He just... Just liked them. I guess liked yeah. having swords around. You know, I have <laughs> I to admit, know. there's this... Um, there's this reality TV show where they have, like, people who forge bladed weapons. Sure. Have you seen it? Yes. Yeah. And I'm I, familiar with it. I get real into it. <laughs> like, I don't really care about that stuff, but, like, watching the what it takes to, like, make them well and, and yeah. testing them and all of that, it's it, it hits the same button for me as, like, the baking shows and, like, sure. the, when they make, like, a whole dress in a day. And I'm like... I'm fascinated. I was going to say, I have the same thing, but with the opposite direction, which is like Project Runway. Mm. And I was like, I don't really understand fashion at all, but I do appreciate the amount of work that goes into this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like like I'm learning something. It's an actual skill. Like, that's what I, that's the kind of reality TV I really get into where people have like a for real demonstratable skill where they're like, check me out. I can do a thing that you can't do. If you could have, well, let's say if you had to have, like, on display in your home a sword from fiction, mm. 
Do you have a? Could you pick one? Is there any sword you even have a mild interest in displaying in your kind life? of? Yes. Okay. Um, I would be interested in, and I, I, I know the name of it, but now I'm not going to be able to come up with it. But the reforged sword from Lord of the Rings. So, okay. Um, it was the sword of Isildur's father that cut the, the ring from the hand of Sauron mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then was reforged and it became like the flame of Anduril, Anduril <laughs> the flame of the West. The fact that you know the name of it tells me <laughs> the answer to my initial question is a big yes. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> there is I'm a, a sword that I would. In my defense, I just <laughs> finished listening to The Return of the King on audiobook this okay. morning. Oh, okay. So. All right. I'll allow it then. <laughs> is that the conclusion then of Lord of the Rings? That, yeah, that's the. Um, oh. It also it, it went into um, some of the like appendices and wow. stuff from after, which I really enjoyed listening to. Like what <laughs> happened to Gimli and Legolas after you know the fellowship, you know, separated. And I'd like to think they went off on another adventure together. There is a theory but... that um, because they were so close, such good friends, and because Gimli loved um, Galadriel so much. That he was offered a spot in the in the the Undying Lands, and that he went on, he left the he went to the Grey Havens with Legolas. Oh, that's cool. After you know, which I would like to think is true because that makes me happy. Yeah, that was one of my favorite relationships in the me book. Too. So I was like, oh, these guys are fun. So yeah, they hung out together until um, Aragorn died, and then there was uh, you know they kind of lost, history lost track of Gimli, and there's a theory that he went with. Legolas. All right. I like it. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's let the nerd levels die down and move on to a different kind of. Well, it depends what you pick, but sure. sure. (laughs) So I feel like since we had audience, you know, demand, I got to pick stay out of the basement. All right. Well, to be totally transparent, we had one person. It counts. Yep. They seemed excited and called it a swing vote. So I was like, hey, you know, and, you know. I, I was tempted to talk about this in some way that was very punishing so that people who didn't vote, I'd be like, see what happens when you don't participate. We now are you about celebrating hear this. books here, <laughs> not punishing people. All right. So stay out of the basement, uh-huh. which is the goosebumps that you remember for yes. sure reading. I read that as an adult in college. Oh. In my uh, children of – or literature of children in childhood class. Do you have any – memorable impressions of it or um i mean i i remember feeling very much too old for it yeah yeah it definitely feels like a kid's book yeah it's like uh not bad the Mm -hmm. goosebumps books so i've read like three of them now and they're not like hilariously bad or anything right but they are very much kids books where you're like as an adult you kind of just like the beats come in you see them coming um which I appreciate that they're there doing that. They are building genre readers. And it's true. I appreciate that. It's true. I mean, I got to believe that, you know, some kid who had all the first 40 Goosebumps books or something probably didn't quit reading entirely yeah. later in yeah. life. But I mean, Christopher Pike did it for me. It was yeah. the same thing, just a different author. Same idea. <laughs> yeah, there have been quite a few, like, knockoff Goosebumps, which are great, mm-hmm. you know, and... I'm looking forward to reading those because I have a feeling they're not going to be as good. Right. <laughs> I think the the competence level 
Yeah, I think that you are not wrong to assume that. Because I know what happened. It's like, you know, Scholastic, I think, published them and just had this runaway hit. And I'm sure every publisher was like, oh, we got to, where is our Goosebumps? Mm-hmm. And they're like, what, you, what is this called? Scaryville? Great, do it. You yeah. know, what's this called? Ghost House Town? Awesome. Go for it. Published. So Stay Out of the Basement is also the first one I remember. Um, it's the second book, but I feel like it was the first, like, really big one. Okay. And it had that image of the hand, the plant right. man hand coming out the door. Mm-hmm. And it was like, that was powerful as a child. <laughs> You're like, oh, my God. <laughs> Monster in the basement, I knew it. Yep. Um, also probably preys on most kids who had a basement, had mm-hmm. some fear of a basement. Yeah, especially um, the unfinished ones. Yeah. I don't know what it is about an unfinished basement that, like, is nightmare fuel for a kid. Yeah. Because when I go in one now, I'm just, I just think about... Spiders. Well, I mostly think about how much work it would take to finish it. Mm, I think about spiders. That does not make me happy either. <laughs> but it's it's not frightening because yeah. I can always comfort myself and be like, it's not your basement. You don't have to finish it. True. Um, here's the story. Basically, this guy... Gets fired from his job. He's a scientist. Uh, And this is all from the POV of his kids. And so he starts doing experiments in the basement. And he's some kind of plant scientist, botanist, or something. Okay. It's very unclear. Plant guy. Yeah. One thing that I'll say is very unclear is, like, what exactly he's trying to do that results in... uh, There are going to be some spoilers in this description because I don't know how else to talk about it. Yeah. One of the things in Goosebumps is really not much happens until, like, the last 20 pages. And then everything happens. And then you get, like, another 20 pages of the next book in, you know, the back of that one. Right. Which is also the the first 20. You could probably read the first and last 20 pages of a Goosebumps book and have the entire, (laughs) a full understanding of what's going on. (laughs) So... He's doing some kind of experiments and is uh, weird and being weird. And then mom goes on vacation, which is also a feature of these Goosebumps books is like, I would say, pretty irresponsible parents. The first one is like these parents move the kids to, you know, the dead house because it's free. And then (laughs) the second one is like mom leaves the kids with dad and they're all kind of like, is dad going to remember to feed us and stuff? You know, and mom's like. Hopefully. But in her defense, it's like her aunt or someone got injured or something. And in the third one, the parents leave the kid with uh, some great aunt lady who is very strange. And um, they do this because they're like looking for a new house or something. And they are like, don't want him to come with them. Uh, It's not expressed in that cruel of a way. But I was like, I mean, I kind of get it. It would be easier to do it without your kid there. Yeah. But also, do you really need to leave, like leave this kid with this sort of distant relative? Right. Who both the parents are like, she is really weird. I don't know if this is a good idea. <laughs> but what choice do we have? And I'm like, I mean, take the kid with you? You're in a Goosebumps book, though. I it's, know. It's imperative to separate the kids from the parents. And to be fair to R.L. Stein, he didn't go like full Disney and just have all the parents die. Right. You know, they're... So far, I have not encountered any orphans or, you know, I'm not witnessing them becoming orphans. Right. 
which, you know, Disney was kind of a fan of for a yeah. while. Well, you get the nice return to safety at the end of a Goosebumps. Yeah. The parents are alive. They come back and then. Or did they? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So dad's doing a bunch of experiments in the basement and the kids keep going in the basement, you know. And basically it's like it seems like what's going on is very realistic in my opinion, which is like the kids are doing the one thing that they've been asked to please not do. And that is to go in the basement. And like the first time they go in the basement, they're just going in there to fool around, like see what's there. Um because they were told not to. Right. And then it's hot in the basement because it's like a greenhouse environment. So the one kid takes his shirt off because he, he's like, it's too hot. And I'm like, really? To wear a T-shirt for 10 minutes? It's too hot? <laughs> and I was like, I notice your sister seems to have no problem, you know, keeping clothed as she's in there. But anyway, they go in the basement. He takes his shirt off, and then they go back upstairs. He realizes he's forgotten his shirt, so then he has to go in the basement again to retrieve his shirt. Sure. So, like, in the first ten pages, they've already gone in the basement. They were told to stay out of, like, three times. And then they go in the basement various other times, and then eventually the dad's boss shows up uh, from his old job. I was going to say, didn't he get fired? So, apparently his dad's boss is, like, a... Uh, you know, supporter of the dad and is like, I believe in your work. And hmm. the board just told me I had to fire. Basically, you know, framing this in a way that it's like kids aren't going to question that. They don't know what jobs sure. are like. They don't know how a job works. Right. And so he's like, let me see your experiments. And then uh, he kind of disappears and they go in the basement again and then find the boss's clothes in the basement and like what's going on. It did give me very brief vibes where I was like, okay, if I was like still in an English program, if I was looking at this book 400 years from now and I was like, you know. Critical analysis time. If I was doing critical analysis, I was like, were the dad and the boss having an affair? And that's why (laughs) he went in the basement and then his clothes were still down there, but he had disappeared. And then dad was acting very strange while mom wasn't there. I was like, this is suspicious. But I don't think that's what was happening. Right. I think it's more there's a monster in the basement. Yep. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, it turns out the dad has created like plant men, you know, that uh, they kind of skirt the sort of uh, ethical issues of creating life. And no one really stops to be like, this is kind of amazing. Like you've created a, a being that is I don't know if you can call it sentient or self-aware, but it's like self-aware enough to imitate the dad in, you know, in appearance and mannerisms, kind of. And it's aware enough to know that it would be bad if the kids discovered that this was happening because the dad is like tied up in the basement or something. And so is the boss. Um, So anyway, I was like, this really does kind of dump this big ethical issue, but is also just pushes it aside immediately and is like... The plant man is just evil because he's scary, I guess. It's plants. It's fine. (laughs) My favorite thing about this, though, is that I thought um, I have this like running theory with the Goosebumps books now that maybe what R.L. Stein was doing was writing books to make his kids afraid of things so they wouldn't do things he didn't want them to do. So, for example, R.L. Stein, maybe his writing workshop was in the basement. 
and the kids kept coming down there and bothering him. So he's like, I'm going to write a book about how scary basements are so they'll leave me alone. And then later, you know, one of his big successes was Horrorland, One Day at Horrorland. And I was like, interesting. R.L. Stein is writing a book about how visiting this premier theme park is maybe not such a good idea. And you know, maybe we shouldn't go on this vacation to this expensive theme park. <laughs> and then I was like, I wonder if there was like a secret network of parents who would like write into R.L. Stein and be like, my kids really want to go to Disneyland. Is there any way you can talk them out of it? Do me a solid. <laughs> My kid keeps messing around with our camera and wasting all the film and stuff. Could you write, like, some camera of the dead or something? And he's like, say cheese and die, here it comes. My grandmother left us a very expensive porcelain doll, and my daughter will not stop messing with it. Yes, yeah. (laughs) My kid has this super creepy uh, ventriloquist dummy that he keeps leaving around the house, and it's like in the night. It's frightening me. Can you somehow separate the two of them through the power of fiction? I like it. So that's that's my new running theory about R.L. Stein that I'm finding very fun. I feel like it's not true, but I wish it were. Well, because here's the thing. It's especially, it seems even more true now that I've read Monster Blood, uh, which is about a slime. Mm-hmm. And... The 90s were, like, all about slime. Oh, yeah. I went down this great rabbit hole. I'll bring them next time. And if someone chooses to hear about monster blood, we can talk about it. But I basically found a subreddit of people just telling stories from when they were children of ways they used Nickelodeon gack that, you know, like someone ruined the plumbing in their kitchen. (laughs) And, like, other people just ruined furniture and, like, just destroyed so many things. Well, now we are living in the resurgence of of slime. I know. So I was like, maybe Monster Blood was to discourage people from, because the 90s were all about slime. Don't put gack in the sink. Don't touch the gack. Don't buy the gack. It's dangerous. (laughs) Not just like in terms of the finishes on all of our items. Right. (laughs) It's not just going to ruin mom's clothes. Yeah. So I'll bring I'll bring those in next time. All right. So if we talk about monster, there are some very choice <laughs> tales. All right, all right. I so like it. That's a that's just a little stay out of the basement. I would recommend. I think goosebumps are pretty fun uh, for kids. Still, yeah. I think they would still work. Like yeah. there's not a lot of anachronistic stuff in them. Um, you know, sometimes you watch like an '80s movie. It's a horror movie, and it's like. They'll just break out. We were watching something, and they broke out a uh, slur for gay person that we don't use anymore. Yeah. But was in very casual circulation in the early 80s. And I was like, ooh. that's." (laughs) But Goosebumps so far has been pretty free of that. That's good. I would probably skip the first one because there is a uh, dead dog in it. Oh. Yeah. Which seemed unnecessary. Yeah. You know, and I was like, come on, R.L. Stein, like you're going a little hard. This is the conjuring. Yeah, this isn't Fear Street. <laughs> this is goosebumps. <laughs> Give me a break. And it has, it is kind of, uh, well, it has heightened the experience for me of the subsequent books because there's always a pet. And I'm like, is he going to kill the pet? Yeah, <laughs> is this pet going to die? <laughs> monster blood. The dog eats some of the monster blood. And I was like, oh, God, this can't, this can't end well. But it actually it does. Okay, good. I'm glad that he he learned from his mistake. 
Anyway, so I was like, maybe he wrote that one to keep kids from <laughs> buying slime and goo and sticky hands and all that yeah. stuff. All right. <laughs> Stay out of the basement. Okay. Do you need reminders? No. Okay. There's episode 13. That's mm-hmm. like a horror. Yep. Under her eye. Mm-hmm. Under her eye. Yep. That's poems. Yeah, horror. Horror poetry. poems. Yep. And then Hooky, mm-hmm. which is a comic book. Mm-hmm. I want to hear about episode 13. Okay. That sounds kind of my speed. Yeah. So. It's a fun one. I, you know, I, I like a horror novel. Um, I like a found footage horror movie, uh, and I am a sucker for a haunted house. So this like hits all my buttons. Um, so and I actually I also really like watching those like YouTube shows of people who like investigate haunted places. Oh, sure. And like you're sure that it's all like coincidence or or manufactured. But it you just like push all that aside so you can get spooks for a little while. Like sure. I love that stuff. <laughs> so that's kind of what this is. Right. So it's. um it's this. Sh- uh, it's actually a TV show. It's not like a YouTube channel or anything. They have a TV show called Fade to Black. It's like their ghost hunting TV show. And their conceit is that you have this married couple, um, Matt Kirkland, who is a true believer. He has like seen what he knows to be ghosts, and he is looking for proof. And his wife, Claire Kirkland, who is a scientist and who has like rigorous. Um, she, she sets up, like, all of their their equipment and makes sure that, like, there is a way of proving or disproving, you know, whether or not Scully it's real. kind yeah, of dynamic exactly. happening. And it's super, super popular, but so far she has debunked everything. They have yet to find <laughs> anything. <laughs> That's awesome. And so, like, the... <laughs> the the network is like we gotta sexy this show up a little, you know. We gotta find like something gotta find exciting. A ghost, guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Claire, the scientist, she's like, she's like, I want to do some real science. Like I'm getting tired of this, you know. And so she's considering leaving the show. Mm. Hasn't told anyone yet, um, but including she, her husband. Including her husband. Wow. But she's considering like she's like I I feel like you know I'm not accomplishing anything. I'm you know, anyone could do this. I, I'm kind of ready for something different. Um, so they're they're filming like their season finale at this um, this derelict mansion, the Paranormal Research Foundation, and that is where you know back in like the 60s and 70s when everybody was like, can, can LSD like give you powers? And mm. like they're doing all of these like mind altering experiments to see if they can communicate with the other side, right? <laughs> And so um, they had, like, this this mansion was abandoned afterwards. Like, things, like, people left and, like, went crazy. And there are all of these stories. And the, the mansion was left empty. And it's still got, like, a lot of the paperwork and the photos. And it's all still in there. It's never been used again. And it's in, like, pretty decent condition and uh, but it's been purchased and it's going to be raised to the ground. It's never been investigated, and so they're going to get in there and they're get given like I don't know three days or something to investigate this place, and then it's going to be torn to the ground. And so they're the only ones who are going to get to do it. So they they go in and they're setting up all of their stuff, and you're getting to read like diary entries, which is how you know Claire is thinking of leaving. And you you know you have the one guy who used to be a cop and. He is sure he saw um, a demonic possession and all of his cop buddies made fun of him because it was like (laughs) at a scene. And so he's like, I'm now it's his like life's 
mission to prove that he's not crazy and he saw what he saw. And you get everybody's backstory about why why they're searching and they're setting up all of the cameras and all of the, you know, trigger items and all of the recording devices. And the the first night, um, they're like walking through and trying to capture EVPs and get photos and everything. And they're getting nothing. It's like usually they at least get like sounds or something that they can investigate. But it's like this place is like too quiet, like nothing mm. happens. Mm-hmm. And then in the morning when they're like checking all of their cameras, they had a sealed room where they put like a lipstick and a doll and like all of these objects and they outlined them in chalk and they just left it empty and locked the whole night. And when they open it, um, the objects have been moved like very obviously. And Claire goes in and she is like examining everything and checking for drafts and checking for whatever. And they're, looking at all of the devices and she declares it legit. She's like, I mm. have no explanation for how this happened. And that is like the start of, you know, things kind of starting to happen in mm-hmm. the mansion. And um, you get all of your your good creepy haunted house. There's like this one room that they used to put people in. It's almost like a sensory deprivation thing and people were going nuts and like, so lots of cool, fun things to investigate, giant house where people can get separated and um, definite haunting things happening. And Nice. Yeah. I like that, like, build. Yeah. You know, the first thing that happens is just like, well, some stuff moved. Right. But it's like, but I can't explain it. Right. But for the first time in, like, the whole show. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, this is this is real. Like. It's like, what's the poltergeist? Is that mm-hmm. the one where, and it's like the girl goes shooting across the floor? Yeah. And you're like, I mean, this is benign, but still weird. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's almost well, more unsettling. That always like, bothered it's not me because the mom bad. is like, check it out. It's so exciting. And I'm like, something you can't see is grabbing your daughter and yanking her across the kitchen. Like, she's wearing a helmet. <laughs> 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 Like so it. it's it's fun if you like a haunted house horror novel, especially with that, like it's all told through, you know, audio transcripts and all of that. Like I I like that memos and emails, yeah. stuff from the stuff from the channel, from the network and stuff from the relatives of the new person that they've cast to try and like bring some excitement to the show and all of that. It keeps the story clipping along, yeah. I think, when you do it that way. Yeah. Nice. It really that sounds does. great. It's it was it's super fun. I I recommend it. All right. Yeah. Well, those are our four mm-hmm. big ones. I feel like we did a good job. We did, yeah. Yeah. We did it. <laughs> uh, okay, so then I did Stay Out of the Basement in the Mad World of William, I think M. Gaines. I didn't put the middle initial, which is in the title, by Frank Jacobs. Um, the ones I didn't talk about so much, Delicious in Dungeon by Ryoko Kui. Um, it's basically about a group of dungeon explorers and they have this problem. So they enter this dungeon. Many people enter this dungeon and, you know, get resources from it or gold or like whatever. It's like a dungeon crawly game, right? It's like kind a, of. yeah, exactly. Except uh, they come across this problem because they're like, well, we enter the dungeon, but then 
we have to carry all this food with us because they'd be in the dungeon for like two weeks. Right. And they were like, we can't bring in enough food to get deep enough into the dungeon to do whatever right. things get they want to the, do. Find the treasure, etc. So one guy basically comes up with an idea, which is like, well, there are things living in the dungeon. There's like an ecosystem here. So that means things in the dungeon must be eating other things in the dungeon, which means that things in the dungeon are edible. And so they, yeah, the other people in his party are kind of like, I don't know, man. <laughs> don't want to eat the troll. <laughs> yeah, well, they that was like the first rule is they were like, we're not going to eat anything sort of humanoid. But as they're having this discussion, they happen to come across a walking mushroom. And so they're like, okay, like that seems vaguely food-like. They also then, uh, this guy, they're kind of in this area, like a marketplace area, and this guy overhears them and is like, I've been doing this for a long time, like eating things in the dungeon. And so he's like, it's doable. It can be done. So they start like exploring the dungeon, but also each sort of episode of their adventure involves like finding some kind of thing that is edible. Right. And so it's like a really weird combination of a fantasy story, but a cooking show as well. Because, you know, this the guy who joins their party is like really into cooking. And so then he's like showing them techniques and he's like, well, because this is... He's like, this creature seems kind of like a seafood, so let's do it like this, you know, or whatever. Um, and I really like it because something that doesn't appeal to me about fantasy is I feel like it is a genre that recycles a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of, you know, there are a lot of dungeons. There are a lot of, you know, uh, living armor and like orcs and right. elves and, you know, these things. are. It feels a little samey to me sometimes. But this kind of takes all those things and looks at them from a different lens. There is, there's a good example of a room they're in that has a trap in it. So it's like a, a flame shoots out if you step in the wrong place. And the guy who's into cooking is like, wait a minute. Like, if there's a flame shooting out, it must have fuel. It's probably some kind of oil. And that means if we can figure out how this trap works, we can get that oil and cook with it. Mm-hmm. You know, he's like, we can make tempura if we <laughs> figure out how this works, you know? And so it's like the idea of a room that has a f- flame trap in it is not really that interesting, but that they're looking at everything as like, how can we cook and eat this is kind of... Yeah. The other thing that's funny about it is there's different characters and they're kind of, I would say, stock fantasy character types. Mm-hmm. But the main, one of the main characters is like, you know, a knight, just basic night guy but he's kind of a maniac because he's really into eating things in the dungeon (laughs) and he gets like really disappointed if something's not edible and like (laughs) he's kind of a weirdo (laughs) and it's very enjoyable cool um if you've watched the series you probably don't need to read the book because it's very close it's one of the closer adaptations i've ever seen it's almost beat for beat but if you're watching the show and you're like uh, you know, I want to take the series further. We have much further in the comics than the series has gone so far. Okay. Um, or if you just kind of want to do it again, because that's fun, because there's, I think, some people have that urge yeah. to, like, do the, the different formats. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's good. Okay. It's really good. And then the other one was Greener Pastures by Pastures by Chuck Palahniuk. So here's the deal. 
It's kind of weird to talk about, and I'm glad you didn't ask me too much about it because it's impossible to read. <laughs> um, this was a novel that he serialized in his newsletter. Right. And it was like a four-pay thing. Um, so, he, so it hasn't been published in any other mm-mm. way. Okay. It's going to be. Okay. But he said he's significantly rewriting it because he felt like the entire third act needs to be rewritten. Okay. Um, I don't know if I totally agree, but it's his thing. Right. Whatever. And maybe he has a better idea for it. Um, Basically, it's about a group of kids who all these kids take this aptitude test in school. And then certain kids who score incredibly high are taken to this place called Greener Pastures because they're like they've used big data and other things. And they're like, this kid's going has like a 98 percent chance of curing cancer or something, Mm. um, given the right environment and like whatever. I'm for that. Yeah. So it's like a good thing, sort of. But they have to leave their family. Right. Their family has to, like, they have to basically fake the kid's death um, so that the kid is completely out of the picture. And then very wealthy people bid on these kids, um, and the kids would become part of their family. But also they're kind of bidding on, like, so this kid cures a disease is going to make a ton of money from that. So it's like an investment almost. Mm, yeah. It's a little weird. Yeah, unsavory. Yeah. And it gets, <laughs> you know, being a Chuck Palahniuk book gets more and more unsavory. And sure. uh, things go drastically downhill. Okay. Um, But it is supposed to come out, I think, later this year okay. in, uh, you know, its revised format. I don't know if it'll be called Greener Pastures or not, but... It'll, I think, follow the same basic yeah. arc. His next release will be what this was. Yeah. Okay. And I heard an interview with him, and I think something interesting about him is he likes to he likes to show characters that have sort of he feel he felt very disillusioned, like in his late twenties, because he felt like I did all the right things, like I went to college, I got a journalism degree, I'm like pay my bills on time, I try and have good credit, I'm, you know, doing all these things, and he was, like, miserable. Yeah. You know, and was just like, it's not working, like, I'm not getting ahead, and everything kind of stinks. Yeah. And he likes to show characters in his books who have deviated from that path and are living good lives, because he says he knows lots of people like that in real life, Mm -hmm. and he feels like that's another way to live um, that can work. And I think this book is probably one of his more successful versions of that, of showing those alternatives and how scoring high on all your tests doesn't really right. result in having a good life. Right. Um, so I think that in a way it's like one of his big successes because it does that. Okay. And I assume that'll probably be part of the revision. Right. So yeah, those are my books. Cool. Very nice. All right. Uh, so I talked about On the Edge by Ilona Andrews. <laughs> Just leave me alone. <laughs> uh, the first in the Edge series. Um, I think there's one other series waiting for me that's got like one book in it no. after I'm done with this one. So I'm really running out. I'm going to have to hit some standalones and short stories and stuff. Oof, I know. Wow. It's rough. In rough the out there for an Ilona the, Andrews yeah. fan. <laughs> the Ilona Andrews <laughs> lean times. Lean times. <laughs> uh, then I talked about episode 13 by Craig DeLuey, mm-hmm. uh, which is about the haunted house. 
Um, then I've got Under Her Eye, um, which is, I brought it because I didn't write down the editor. It's edited by Lindy Ryan and Lee Murray. And um, it is in partnership with something called The Pixel Project, which is um, this organization that raises money for um, combating violence against women worldwide. And so um, there has been this new push in the horror genre to include poetry as part of it. And um, they this is the second volume of um, women in it's a women in horror collection. This is the second volume. And they decided to do domestic um, domestic horror. And one of the editors knew of the Pixel Project and said, this is a match made in heaven. So they contacted them and said, we want to release this collection. And then some of the, the funds will go towards this Pixel Project to, to combat violence against women, which is great. Um, and then you also get... Um, horror poetry. And like I said, this one, The Stoker. Um, I don't know how long there's been a poetry um, category, but there is now. Yeah, it can't be that long, I wouldn't think. I think it's, I mean, it's got to be like newer. like a newer genre. Yeah. yeah. Um, and this is the first time I've actually read one of the horror anthologies that has been nominated. And this, like I said, this one actually won. And um, it's a whole different kind of horror. It's a lot more at least for for domestic horror, it's a lot more subtle and a lot more real, which kind of makes it awful in a Mm. lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, One of my favorites is um, a house listing. And so it just starts out, it's like a a cozy starter family home. And then you get these like um, footnotes that say like, which is what our family was. And then it says, Mm. it's got like, a view to the lake with a beautiful patio, which is where the fight started that night. And, mm. you know, goes along and it ends up with um, for inquiries and property disclosures, contact so-and-so. And it's like they legally have to tell you what happened here, you know. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's it, it's not monsters in the closet horror. It's okay. like the horrors of, of like real life that are actually happening to like hundreds of women around the world mm. every day which is important and terrible um, and horrific. But like, I, I do think that it's important. And so it may not be the kind of thing that you want to sit down and read from cover to cover. Probably, yeah. Probably. That might be a bit much. <laughs> but I do think that um, it's an interesting way to look at horror that I think a lot of us probably haven't done before. Well, it seems like... It's a good idea for an anthology. Yeah. like anthologies always have the problem of like, yeah, you know, they're hit and miss. Right. But with a poetry anthology, the misses are short. Right. So it's like, well, yeah. I didn't Three like pages, that. Three pages, yeah. two pages. It took me two it's minutes. Fine. Like, yeah. And then yeah. you can move on. And I went through um, and read all of the authors of the, the poems, and I'm not familiar with any of these writers. So I'm also being kind of introduced into to a lot more you know, horror authors that I was completely unfamiliar with. Are they mostly poets or are they a lot of horror authors? uh, Well, they're all poets. um, And I know that at least some of them are specifically horror poets. Hmm. Because like some of the essays and introductions and stuff in the beginning, they talk about how um, they wanted to, you know, be taken seriously as a poet and never felt, it never felt right. And then they Mm. kind of landed in horror poetry where they can address some of the darker stuff and you know and it it fits that's cool and so yeah i like that yeah me too so i'd recommend it and it is in the library so you can get it 
Uh, and then my fourth one was Hooky. I but, like, sorry. No. I just like to, it's like whoever put the barcode on this made an attempt to put it somewhere that doesn't like block the cover art. Yeah. Which is I much appreciated. Whoever yeah. did that, I just want to shout out to you. I don't know. This might be one that was processed by um, another Megan. And if I, because I think that this is one that we probably had to order from somewhere other than our vendor. And if so, then that would be her. So shout out to her. Let's just credit her anyway. Yeah. And if it wasn't job, her, Megan. then, you know, whatever. <laughs> She's done a good job before. So. She has. <laughs> I know that she has pro- um, processed some of our books that are like this, and she does take the, the time to find a spot. It's very much appreciated. Yeah, Every I once agree. in a while you get a book and you're like, you had to put the barcode right there. Right on top of the person's <laughs> I face. Know that's where you normally put it, but come on. <laughs> <sighs> All right. And then my fourth book was Hooky um, by Miriam Bonaster Tour. And it's a graphic novel from our kids section. So for a slightly younger audience, it is pretty thick. It's like two, three hundred pages ish. And um, it's got a very cute art style. It's about these two young witches that are twins, a boy and a girl. And they are basically leaving in the morning to catch the bus to go to witch school. And they miss the bus. And (laughs) rather than go home and admit to their parents that they've missed the bus, um, they end up finding a wizard and becoming his apprentice. And they're like, we'll just do this. This will be fine. Yeah, we'll go home after. What could go wrong? (laughs) And uh, they end up uh, befriending the human princess who... um, the king is at war with the witches. And so there are, you know, you have this this human girl and these, these you know, witches, these ch- children witches developing this friendship, but also kind of fundamentally are in opposition to each other. Mm. There's a whole faction of witches and these the twins' parents are part of it who are like fighting against humans and kind of want to take over the world. And um, as far... As far as I know, this is the first in a continuing series. Um, So if this kind of it's, you know, a lot of world building and a lot of character development in the first volume. But um, towards the end, you start getting into the like the conflict of it all. Mm. And then I think that will continue in volume two. Nice. Yeah. Sounds great. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah. This has been Why Did You Read That? It has been. And And we've discussed eight whole books for you. We did it. How, where else are you going to hear about eight whole books in like an hour-ish? And with such charming hosts. <laughs> Nowhere. Nowhere. Before I was like, mm, actually, there might be other places. But that last part, I was like, nowhere. Nowhere. This is as good as it gets, people. One of a kind. If you're not enjoying this, I don't know what to tell you. That's a either. you problem. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I like to end by berating <laughs> anyone who bothered to listen. <laughs> yeah, now I feel bad all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's that's the perfect way to end is yep. on a down <laughs> a down note. We're gonna try for a month. Yeah, we'll try and we'll try and get this yeah. done. I'm in taking over scheduling, days. so I'm gonna wrangle you, and that's we're right. gonna do a month. Yeah, we've we made a good decision to <laughs> divide the duties differently <laughs> because I wasn't doing them. <laughs> All right, we'll see you next time. Bye.